Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 1998, director Steven Spielberg released the Academy Award-winning motion picture, Saving Private Ryan. It starred Tom Hanks and Matt Damon and Tom Sizemore and a few other young actors who now have made a name for themselves. The movie was set during the Allied Forces invasion of Normandy in June 1944, Normandy, France to be specific. It follows the journey of Captain John Miller, who was played by Tom Hanks, and his seven-man squadron as they search for Private First Class James Francis Ryan, who is played by Matt Damon, a very young Matt Damon, I might add. Miller's squadron was dispatched by the Secretary of the Army to retrieve Ryan, because he is the last surviving son of an Iowa widow whose other three sons had been killed in World War II that week. The movie grippingly depicts the squadron's struggle to find Private Ryan in the chaos of post-D-Day France. Uh, They had to overcome incredible odds and obstacles while wrestling with the fact that we're doing this for a widow we don't know, for a man that we don't know, we could already, he could already be dead by the time we get there, and we could die in the process. And yet, after they overcome incredible odds and obstacles, Miller's squadron eventually finds Private Ryan, and they bring him home. However, the mission was costly. Captain Miller and five of his seven squadron die in the process, giving their lives to save the one. The final scene of the film shows an elderly Private Ryan standing over Captain Miller's grave some 40 years later. The gray-haired veteran then turns to his wife and asks whether he had lived a life worthy of such a sacrifice, to which she replies, that he did. Just like the soldiers in Saving Private Ryan, the Lord has enlisted and assigned all Christ followers to the mission of seeking out and saving those who have been lost. That's what the stories Jesus is going to tell us today are all about. We're going to conclude part one of our journey through the parables of Jesus today uh, in this series called Once Upon a Time. Uh, If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 15 and take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in. And if you've got your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We want you to be able to follow along today and understand what I'm talking about. And We've got plenty of Bibles to share. I mentioned part one regarding this series because when I mapped out this series, uh, the scope and sequence of it, last summer, I discovered that there were 
about 24 to 25 messages I could do on the parables. Some of them overlap. Some of them aren't long enough to really preach a message on. But um, I felt, for various reasons, it would be wise to break the series into two parts of 12 messages each. And so um, I decided I'm going to do part one this fall, and then, Lord willing, maybe part two next year. Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, when God's Word says at one time in your life, you were, it says in God's Word, excuse me, at one time in your life you were alienated from God, a slave to sin, and condemned to an eternity in hell. We could boil down all the negative things that God's Word has to say about those who do not know Christ into one word. Lost. And that is actually the word the scriptures use. They are lost. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells two earthly stories and packs them with heavenly truths, the most important of which is our big idea for today. We've not been called to keep the faith, but to give it away. We've not been called to keep the faith, but to give it away. If you are a believer, your life and your eternal destiny radically changed when the Lord dispatched another believer to share the gospel with you. If we were to pass a microphone around this morning and to have some of you share the one or two names that God used, the people God used to bring you to faith in Christ, I'm sure you could each name some. Or name one person. Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent or a friend or a sibling. And that's because it's rare that the Lord uses angels and miracles, signs and wonders to save someone. Instead, he prefers to use people. People just like you and me. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Paul, in other words, is saying God has to use people, or he doesn't have to. He chooses to use people to share and spread and preach the gospel. And so people have to go out and share it, whether it be preachers from the pulpit or missionaries, or regular church members living in their neighborhoods, working in the marketplace, teaching at school, or being a student at school. I, it, I've heard it said before that every conversion of a rebellious sinner is a miracle. Well, as I was thinking about that this weekend, I think it also could be said that God's willingness to let us take part in such a monumental event of witnessing to someone and seeing their heart change and their eternal destiny change, I think that's a miracle too. Jesus told the two parables that we're going to be looking at today so we would remember that he sent people to share the gospel with us, and thus we should be willing to share it with others. And so with that, as you look at your Bible this morning in Luke 15, before I read the passage, verses 1 through 10, I just want to highlight for you four key words that I want to encourage you to underline, like I did in my Bible. Um, there are four key words. The first is lost in verses 4 and 8. 
The second key word is found in verses 5 and 9. The third one is rejoice, and also in verses 5 and 9. And then joy in verses 7 and 10. These four key words are repeated in both parables, and they capture the theme of both parables. In fact, joy is a major theme of all three parables that are in Luke chapter 15. And so with that, follow along with me as I read Luke 15, 1-10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's the first point on your outline this morning, and that is that, number one, religious people don't care about lost people. Religious people don't care about lost people. We see in verses 1 and 2 that there were tax collectors and sinners, and then there were Pharisees and scribes watching Jesus have a meal with the tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, you might remember from other Bible passages, are uh, very much hated by the Pharisees and everybody else. Tax collectors worked for the Roman Empire to gather funds and then take them back to Rome to support the building of infrastructure and the army and so on and so forth and to fill the coffers for Caesar. Tax collectors were usually uh, wealthy because they extorted extra money from Jewish citizens. Uh, they also were hated by the Jews and usually corrupt and dishonest. Uh, these guys, along with other sinners, were considered the scum of the earth by the Pharisees. Thus, as we see in verse 2, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, it says in the ESV. The word that Luke uses in the original text means to murmur. It was that, that whispering, gossipy, passive, aggressive kind of chatter that everybody likes to be a part of, but nobody likes to be the target of. Hey, look at what he's doing now. He's, he's eating with all those tax collectors and sinners. Oh my gosh, can you believe that? Yeah, go tell them. Go tell them. Why were they criticizing Jesus for having a meal with some average Joes like us? Well, <sighs> Because 
The Pharisees took certain Old Testament teachings, like Psalm 1, for example, about remaining distinct from the rest of the world. The Pharisees would take those teachings to the extreme, and they were like really extreme separatists, so much so that they wouldn't even greet a non-Jew. And so, Jesus once again was breaking all established cultural norms. And as we've noticed in other gospel passages, he not only hears their grumbling, but then he tells a parable. I wish I could have been a disciple there watching this play out. There's the grumbling. Here comes the story. <laughs> he's going to get him. Here, he's loading his gun. Here comes the truth. There it goes. <laughs> it's the same pattern. Haven't we seen this before, Mark? Yeah. We saw this back in chapter 5, didn't we? Yeah. But he not only hears the grumbling, he tells them a parable, two parables, aimed at the very heart of their elitism. Next, number two on your outline, people instinctively search for what they love when it's lost. People instinctively search for what they love when it's lost. There's some cultural background I need to give you on the parable of the sheep and the parable of the coin. First on the sheep and on shepherding. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep would have resonated with the men and the boys in the crowd because shepherding was a common occupation in those days. It was a very common occupation. And the typical flock of sheep was about a hundred in number. And if you're wondering why a shepherd would risk losing more of his 99 to go chase the one, uh, you're not alone. I was wondering that as well. But here's the rest of the story. Um, there are a couple of reasons why a shepherd would take such a risk. First of all, shepherds most often were hired by the owners of the flock to take care of the flock and move it to various water holes and pastures to feed. Well, if one sheep wound up missing on the shepherd's watch, the shepherd would have that sheep taken out of his paycheck. So he would lose money. The only exception was that if the shepherd could prove to the owner that another animal or predator had killed the sheep, that it wasn't his fault. Losing a sheep not only meant lost revenue, though, for the shepherd, it also meant a lost reputation. Word would get out to the other sheep and cattle owners in the community that, hey, this guy, he's not as good at keeping the flock together. He tends to lose them. You may not want to hire him, or you may want to pay him less because his skill level's not as good as that. He's a C shepherd. If you want an A shepherd, go get that guy over there. So, because shepherds traveled together... It was common for one to ask his friends to keep an eye on his flock while he rustled up the one that had gotten away. That's another reason why a shepherd would leave his flock to go get the one. Now, on the coin, here's a background, some background on the coin. The parable of the lost coin would have resonated with the women and girls in the audience. The coins mentioned in verse 8 were most likely part of the woman's dowry. A dowry was money given by Jewish fathers to their daughters 
to take into their new marriage so she would have a means to take care of herself in case the marriage dissolved or her husband died. After the wedding, the bride would keep her dowry in her headdress so that it was on her body at all times for safekeeping. The coin that was lost is called a drachma. It's about a one day's wage. And since she had 10 drachmas and lost one, she had about a week and a half's wages. And that was it. That was her, her emergency fund. This is not much in those days, suggesting that she may have come from a poor family. And if that's the case, the value of one coin lost to somebody who was poor, you can just imagine is much greater than, say, a daughter who had been given away in marriage from a rich family. This woman couldn't spare losing one coin. The imagery that Jesus uses in these parables, though, raises a question that I feel compelled to answer, and that is, why does the Bible, and Jesus in particular, call unbelievers lost? Because that's what the sheep and the coin represent, unbelievers, and they are lost, and they need to be found. Well, here's uh, letters A, B, C, D, and E. This is just a quick, very quick scratching the surface of what the scriptures have to say about those who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, first, letter A, unbelievers are hopeless in a dying world. They are hopeless in a dying world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, remember who you used to be before you were called into a relationship with Christ. Remember the fact that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from God's family, and unable to access the promises and privileges that God grants to his children. Paul then goes on to say, unbelievers have no hope and they are without God but living in God's world. They may hope in temporal things, like they may hope to get married or they may hope to have children or to be successful in their career or to retire well, but they hope in things that don't last. And so they're hopeless because everything they put their hope into is going to perish. It's not going to last. It's all temporal. It's not eternal. On the other hand, believers have what Peter calls a living hope. Like that song that we sing here, I think it's by Phil Wickham, uh, My Living Hope. It's referring to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Peter says, believers have a heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Next, letter B, unbelievers are morally sinful. They're lost because they're morally sinful. Psalm 51 says all humans have been born in iniquity. It's just another way of saying that we all have inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. And without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, unredeemed sinners do everything that you see on the nightly news and more. In fact, if you want to have an interesting exercise that will change the way you watch the news or read the news, maybe on your smartphone, just the next time you watch the news or read it, 
Ask yourself how many of the stories are about sin? How many of the stories are about sin? And, and if all the stories about sin were taken out, what would be left? So unbelievers, without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, without being born again, they lie, cheat, steal, murder, gossip, covet, lose their temper, commit sexual immorality, they love money, they boast, and they do not fear God, and so on and so forth. And because they've not been forgiven for their sin through a relationship with Christ, they, they live every day feeling ashamed of their sin, or even worse, they're not ashamed of their sin. Letter C, unbelievers are spiritually blind. God's word says that without the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit, unbelievers are unable to understand spiritual truths, and they, they often don't even see their sin as sinful. They believe things about themselves and about God and about life and death that are not true. They're not based on the truth of Scripture. Some unbelievers even deny that God exists at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, uh, that's where Paul says that the evil one perpetuates this blindness by keeping some unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel. Next, letter D, unbelievers are lost because they're enslaved to sin. Romans chapter 6 says that unbelievers are slaves to sin. It means they have no spiritual power to resist temptation. All they can do is sin. Until the old self dies with Christ, they are unable to break sin habits. Thus, they live their lives in a perpetual cycle of sin, consequences for sin, sin, consequences for sin, sin, consequences for sin. It means that we shouldn't expect Christ-like behavior out of unbelievers, and it shouldn't shock us when they tragically sin. And then finally, unbelievers are called lost because letter E they're sentenced to eternal death. The scriptures teach that, and if I were to put it simply, they will die twice. First, they will die physically, and then they will die spiritually by being banished to hell for rejecting Christ, and they will suffer God's full wrath for their sin. This is another reminder that the greatest need for every person on earth is not health or wealth or happiness or comfort or the fulfilling of their dreams and desires, but rather to have their sins forgiven so they can be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when studying the scriptures, it's helpful to ask this question. I, I teach this to the men in my Wednesday night uh, Bible study group. Uh, when you want to interpret a passage or a verse, ask yourself, what is this saying about God and what is it saying about me? Well, here's what Jesus is saying in these two parables about the Father. And that is, God cares about lost sinners, so he searches for them. God cares about lost sinners, so he searches for them. On one level, uh, the shepherd and the woman are God. 
looking for the lost sheep or the lost coin. He is the pursuer. A.W. Tozer talked about this in his classic book, God's Pursuit of Man. Tozer writes this, Salvation is from our side a choice, but from the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest of the Most High God. Are you able to look back to the day when you received Christ as your Savior, if you've done that, and to see how the Lord was pursuing you? Have you ever done that? Boy, I can. I, I, I remember during my first few years of walking with the Lord after I got saved, I was slowly, as I grew in the Lord and the Spirit worked in my life and my eyes got more open, I was able to look back and see a week prior, a month prior, two years prior, things that God was doing in my heart, people he was putting in my life, and how he was setting the table for me to repent of my sins and trust Christ. He's a pursuer. The next thing Jesus is saying, we get back to the question here, what do these parables say about God? And what do they say about man? Well, here's what they say about Man, about us, about Christ followers. Jesus is saying we should care about lost sinners and search for them as well. We should care just like God does. Please note that the shepherd and the woman, both of them, had to stop the important tasks they were doing at the time in order to do something else more important and that was to recover something of great value that had been lost. In the same manner, sharing the gospel with an unbeliever will almost always be inconvenient. I have found that I'm almost always in the middle of doing something else or on my way to go do something else when the opportunity arises. Because we'll always be busy doing other easily justifiable tasks. And so I just want to encourage you to be open to who the Lord might be putting in your life and to be sensitive to the Spirit maybe giving you opportunities to share the gospel with people that he's put in your life and to realize that, and I struggle with this too, I'm very task-oriented and focused and I have goals and plans and it's hard for me as well, but with the Lord's help, we can be sensitive to the Spirit and sensitive to opportunities he might be giving us to share the gospel. So, we've not been called to keep the faith, but to give it away. Here's number three in your outline. The third truth we can take away from these two parables. Found people are celebrated on earth and in heaven. Found people are celebrated on earth and in heaven. In verses 7 and 10, the last verse of both parables, the same thing is described by Jesus. He says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Two quick comments about this. 
verse, first of all, joy is one of the distinguishing characteristics that sets heaven apart from earth. Earth is cursed by the fall. Thus, life on earth is filled with sadness and pain and loss and disappointment and suffering. But on the other hand, there is joy everywhere in heaven. Because God is there and sin is not. Repent, here's the second thing I want to point out about verses 7 and 10. Jesus also says the condition that leads to more joy being in heaven is the repentance of a sinner. To repent, it comes from a Greek word, metaneo, or metaneo, depending on which form of the verb. It's used 23 times in the New Testament, and it literally means to change the mind so that it leads to a complete turnaround in someone's life. I, I like to define repentance like this. It's the change of mind that leads to a surrendered heart in a changed life. And I, I, I say that I define it that way because I, I always fear that someone might take repentance as a change of mind and think, oh, well, it's just the intellectual ascent of becoming aware of the gospel. No, it's not. It's so much more than that. There are a lot of people, as you've heard me say before, that know about Jesus, but few who know Jesus. One, the first, is an intellectual understanding. I, I, they, they know the Sunday school stories. They know the Christmas and the Easter story. The other has more to do with an experience. Coming to know Christ personally and having a relationship with him. So repentance is a change of mind that leads to a surrendered heart and a changed life. Now, something else I want to point out that I really don't want us to miss here in verses 7 and 10, the last verse in each parable. Just as the shepherd and woman were willing to stop what they were doing in order to recover what was lost... Jesus is saying his father is willing to stop the nonstop worship in heaven in order to celebrate a sinner who surrenders their life to Christ. I know that was a long run-on sentence, so let me see if I can boil it down to a Twitter post. Nonstop worship happening in heaven that only stops when a sinner repents. And then the worship resumes. I mean, think about that for a moment. We know how God likes his worship, right? He's not going to want his worship interrupted and the angels worshiping him interrupted. But there's one thing that does, he does allow to interrupt his worship when a sinner repents. Man, think about that. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, on the day that you trusted Christ and committed to follow him, the angels in heaven went, Hooray! He got saved or she got saved. 
Okay, choir, start back up again. For me, heaven stopped and rejoiced momentarily on February 9th, 1991. How about you? Have you paused the worship in heaven yet because you repented and chose to follow Christ? You've heard me say before in teaching of scriptures, we get a sense of what God values by what God incentivizes or or what he emphasizes. Well, golly, is there any other proof that we need that he loves to see lost sinners come to faith in Christ than the Lord being willing to have worship interrupted in heaven so the angels can call out the name of the sinner who got saved. Wow. Amazing. Now, before we land the plane here and we move into our applications, allow me to throw a lasso back to some of the previous parables that we've looked at and tie a theme together that I'm seeing that I want you to see as well. The parables of the sower, the narrow door, and the great banquet all reveal that many will be given the opportunity to be saved from paying the consequences for their sin, but few will take advantage of it. In contrast to those three parables that I just mentioned, the parables of the lost sheep and coin prove that the Lord has always been and always will be willing to save sinners. Then sinners are willing to be saved. Please don't miss that. These two parables today remind us that we can get a taste of the joy of heaven here on earth by seeking and saving the lost. Because we've not been called to keep the faith, but to give it away. So what do we do now? One of the many reasons that we emphasize application here at Vanguard is because God values application. In fact, it's offensive to the Lord for us to look into his word and then walk away and go, oh, that was nice, and not do anything with it. Because he didn't give us his word so that we could just kind of casually read it. In fact, Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, meaning the things in the scriptures, blessed are you who do them. There's that incentivizing again. I will bless you if you actually read it and then do it. So here's the first application that comes to mind. Ask the Lord to break your heart for lost people. Application number one, ask the Lord to break your heart for lost people. So when I read these, past, these, these two parables, I was asking myself, what are we supposed to do now? What do we, where do we go? And at first I was tempted, I have to be honest with you, just being transparent, I was, I was tempted to share some more great strategies I've learned on how to share the gospel with people wherever you are, on a plane or a bus or a train. But then I realized it really won't make a difference if I share the latest and greatest strategies and techniques if you don't care about lost people. 
It, it, it won't make a, one bit of a difference if your heart isn't aching for those who are separated from Christ by their unrepentant sin. And that's because the human heart only prioritizes what it loves. It's how the Lord made us. We make time for, and we talk about, and we post on social media the things that we love. Thus, if you love unbelievers, you'll be willing to be inconvenienced and to take risk to share the gospel with them. Now, one of the many reasons the Lord, I think, wants us to study his word when we gather as a church is so that our hearts are gradually changed to match his heart. So part of what we're doing when I stand up here and I preach the word, just as preachers have done for centuries, is, is we're trying to get God's heart on various issues and topics and to download his heart into our hearts so that our desires match his desires. So that what he values becomes what we value. And that's the case here. The Lord wants us to value, to desire, to share the gospel with those who are far from him and need to be brought near through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So these parables make it clear the Lord cares for lost people and he's not done populating his kingdom and he wants us to play a role in finishing his mission. But before praying for a burden for the lost, some of you might need to ask the Lord to remind you of how lost you were before you received Christ. I have found in my own walk of the Lord, the further I get from my conversions experience, it's easy to forget what life was like. And I'm grateful that I, I came to Christ about age 19, so I still can remember some of what my life was like in college, and high school, excuse me, in early college, before I knew the Lord. But it does get harder with age. Because even as sanctified sinners, I find that we, we can start to think, well, I've always been able to pray. I've always gotten answers to prayer. I've always been able to ask God to forgive me for things. I've always been righteous. No, 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 you haven't. Neither have I. I mean, do you remember when you didn't know whether God loved you? You didn't know whether heaven was real. You didn't know what God could do in all the highs and lows of your life, working all things together for good, and you didn't even know how to pray. Do you remember that? If you can remember that, that'll give you a glimpse of what the life of an unbeliever is like. When an unbeliever loses their job or has some catastrophe hit their life, they can't rest on the sovereignty of God and the promises of God and be confident that it's okay, this is going to work out for good, the Lord's in control, he's going to provide. They, they can't do that. That's just a smidgen of what unbelievers experience. Now, others of you, you might need to replace the fear of man that exists deep in the crevices of your heart with a healthy fear of the Lord, because that might be what's keeping you from sharing the gospel. 
is that you fear people more than you fear him. It's nearly impossible to obey the Lord in anything if you fear people more than him. This is why the Scottish Baptist preacher Oswald Chambers once said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And let me just say, there's a great freedom and a peace that comes from fearing the Lord. And I have found he's easier to please than people. I'm reminded of the promise in Isaiah 41, verse 13. The Lord says to the people of Israel, For I, the Lord your God, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. It's another reminder that whatever God calls us to do, he will enable us to do. So when he calls us to share the gospel with unbelievers, he will help us do it if we will step out in faith and promise and, and, and trust him, excuse me. Application number two, learn how to share the simple gospel confidently. That will help. Uh, one of the common myths I hear that keeps many Christ followers from sharing their faith is the belief that you have to have the Bible memorized from Genesis to Revelation or that you at least have to have a PhD in New Testament Greek. And like, you know, once I have that, then I can witness. I'll be ready. No, 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 you won't. Did you know that most believers in the New Testament immediately began sharing their faith after receiving Christ? They, they knew less about the scriptures than we do. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have hard copies of the scriptures. They didn't have the internet. Here's a couple examples. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met in John 4, we're told that uh, after she came to faith in Christ and believed in Christ, she returned to her hometown where the, many of the Samaritans believed in the Lord because of her testimony, John 4, 39. And then when Peter and John, they were brought before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4 for preaching the gospel, the high priests were astonished that they were uneducated, ordinary men means they didn't go to seminary, they didn't go to college, they had never been to high school, and probably not grade school. So when the high priest in that Jewish council in Acts 4 told them, stop preaching about Jesus, the response is amazing. Peter and John replied, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We saw him. He's real. He's alive. Translation, we can't help but talk about Jesus. Paul said something similar in 2 Corinthians 4 when he wrote, I believed and so I spoke. Now one way to do this is to learn a simple gospel presentation so that when the Lord does bring an opportunity your way, you're ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. I provided a simple gospel presentation on a sermon note handout several months ago. I think it was back in January. It's still on our website. I checked last night. Um, if you just go to our website sermon page and you find the sermon, Jesus First in My Witnessing, it's in the Colossians series. 
On the sermon note PDF, page 2, I have 10 ways to pray for unbelievers and a simple gospel presentation using the acrostic faith, F-A-I-T-H. I'd encourage you to check that out. Download it. Download it, fold it, put it in your Bible. In the early 1500s, there were two monks named Martin. The first was Martin Basley. He was convinced of the truth of the gospel, but hesitated to proclaim it. Instead, he wrote out his confession on a piece of parchment. It read like this, Oh, merciful Christ, I know that I can be saved only by the merit of thy blood. Holy Jesus, I acknowledge thy sufferings for me. I love thee, I love thee. Then he removed a stone from the wall of his chamber. And Martin Basley, Basley excuse me, deposited his confession there. It was discovered 100 years later. Sadly, up until that point, no one knew that Martin Basley had found Christ. Now, about the same time, there was a second monk in that same era, named Martin Luther. He also saw clearly from the scriptures that salvation came through repentance and faith alone and Christ alone. Except this second Martin didn't keep the faith to himself. Being unafraid, he gave it away. So he said this, My Lord has confessed me before men. I will not shrink to confess him before kings. This Holy Spirit conviction enabled Martin Luther to call out the heresy of the Catholic Church and to launch what's known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, what's interesting to me is that both Martins had a biblically accurate confession. Nothing wrong with either one that I showed you on the screen. But only one was used by God to change the world. You may not change as many lives as Martin Luther did, but you won't change any lives at all if you don't share your faith, if you don't speak up when God gives you the opportunity. We've not been called to keep the faith, but to give it away. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord how you can do that. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.